And welcome to another lesson or episode rather of Muslim Money. I'm your host Imran, and we're here joined with Anissa Buckley, Doctor Anissa Buckley. <laughs> I can't even pronounce your name. How you going, Anissa? Are you fired up to talk about Islamic finance? Yep, absolutely. So what is the episode going to be about today? Well, today we're going to talk about Islamic finance. So what the origins, what it's about, and we're going to go through some of the structures. And I'm going to try to explain it as simply as possible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know you're across it, but I'm going to explain to you like you've never heard any of these terms before. Don't worry. It's always good to have it broken down because, yep, sometimes it's, it gets confusing because a lot of the names sound quite you know, similar. So it's, it's always good to have a refresher. Okay, so maybe just to get started, Imran, do you want to explain what exactly is Islamic finance and how did it all start? When we talk about Islamic finance, we often think about riba. Mm. And, uh, but I think it's a lot more than that. So riba obviously is a massive component, so avoiding riba. And in Islamic finance, the Islamic finance industry would typically interpret riba as interest or any increment on the principal. Riba is obviously the most, I guess, distinctive element of Islamic finance. But, And again, as we've learned from the previous episodes, that riba, you know, there, there are different interpretations, but typically the interpretation of riba is bank interest, whether nominal or real, simple or compounded, fixed, variable, you know, the whole interest, essentially. A whole range of terms. Yeah. So typically this is the main... I guess, most common interpretation, or at least the interpretation that the Islamic finance industry and the scholars which kind of support it agree on. Mm. So from the perspective of the Islamic finance industry and a lot of scholars, uh, generally they consider money to be a medium of exchange Mm. and therefore it's considered unjust to charge interest by lending it to another person. This is the kind of um, standard industry approach and interpretation. Um, so Islamic finance also prohibits contracts involving gharar, which is, uh, I guess, uncertainty or ambiguity uh, in contracts. So say, for, for example, you know, in terms of the subject matter or the price or the, you know, the time of delivery, that like these things, these things have to be explicit and clear, mm-hmm. you know, right from the start. And also transactions that uh, involve gambling or, or, or gaming. Yeah. Um, so Maysir, I think that's pretty clear. I mean, like some finance transactions typically have something that involves an underlying asset and some element of risk, right? Some element of risk sharing between parties. So there's some kind of a tangible item. Yeah, some something tangible, something real, but the risk can't be to the extent of like gambling, right? Okay. Yeah. So um, and then again, it generally has this a kind of negative screening for certain industries that are deemed to be harmful to society from an Islamic perspective. So, you know, again, gaming, alcohol, tobacco, these types of industries are typically screened out of transactions involving Islamic deals. Like weapons and stuff, etc. Exactly. So how did this actual Islamic finance industry start? When, when did it actually take shape? Well, obviously the Islamic finance industry, as we know, it is a very different to, you know, how it was during the time of the Prophet. So, Again, during the time of the Prophet, 7th century Arabia, the only time you'd get a loan is, again, if you were really struggling. Mm-hmm. And in that context, we're, we're taught to give a qarat hasan, which is an interest-free loan. Mm-hmm. 
And if they can't pay back, we're taught to, you know, forgive it, you know, let it go. But there's no prohibition on trade, which we mentioned. Mm. So I can have an asset, I can sell it, we can form a partnership, which is a, um, a mudaraba or musharaka mm-hmm. partnership, which I'll explain in a second. So something finance is this kind of participatory style of um, tr- trade and doing business. Again, we have to remember that this type of activity forms in the realm of mu'amalat. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Instead of ibadat. Yeah, correct. So there's that delineation between ibadat and mu'amalat. So ibadat is that your your personal relationship with Allah or God. Mm-hmm. And in that realm, you know, the generally there's, there's no change, right? So everything's prohibited except what's clearly permissible. Mm-hmm. So what about the monetary issue of zakat? That's one of the five pillars of Islam. Doesn't that fall in ibadat? Uh, yeah, that's true. Um, so I, I guess with the exception of zakat, which is there is a lot of, um, I guess, modern-day ijtihad on that particular topic, uh, generally speaking, everything's fixed. Like if you go and say, now we need to pray six times a day, mm. that's generally uh, that, that, that's clearly prohibited. Mm-hmm. But... I say this because Islamic financing, a lot of these structures, forms in the realm of mu'amalat. Mm-hmm. And in mu'amalat, the general rule is al-asal fil ashya ibaha. So everything is permitted except if there's a clear um, you know, text, a clear nas, nas qat'i thabut, some clear text that prohibits that particular uh, action. So these will all be in sort of the social realm of contracts. Exactly, yeah. Social interpersonal uh, contracts mm. that you can strike with with each other or with your neighbor or wh- whoever you're doing business with. Mm. So the Islamic finance industry and the structures falls within this realm. Mm-hmm. So that's why there's a lot of flexibility in this regard. But then with that flexibility, depending on the social context, and depending on the maqasid al-sharia, which is the overarching spirit of the law, any particular uh, contract, whether it be a, an ijara contract or, or mudaraba contract or whatever contract it is, mm-hmm. you know, can fall within the various realms of permissibility. Right. Does that kind of make sense? Mm. So there's a lot of scope for different types of Yeah, exactly. So, so for example, you might have a, you might have a musharaka structure but if the terms of that musharaka, you know, are to at the detriment of, um, you know, someone who's struggling or someone or a poor person, for example, then the overarching maqasid al-sharia would dictate that that contract is, you know, um, it might still be p- permissible, but it might be, you know, classified as makroh or you know detestable. Um, I think we're jumping ahead of it yes. <laughs> ourselves a little bit because I've, I've I've said a lot of things which I think need a bit more of um, more explanation. So yeah, why, why don't you talk about where the modern Islamic finance industry started? Like, was it a particular place in the world? Was it a particular time? What were the factors that led to it? Yeah, so the the modern I guess Islamic finance industry I guess started around discussions in this place called Midghamar in Egypt. In 1963, and it's what's interesting about this particular uh, uh, experiment or experience is that Mid Ghamar, um, the charter made no reference to Islam or the Sharia, mm. but what they did is they financed businesses on this kind of profit-sharing basis through these small partnerships, 
And it was part of the success of, of, of Mit Ramar and its ability to induce savings among the lowest income class in, in, in Egypt um, and encouraging small-scale entrepreneurs mm. that a lot of the literature focuses on this particular Mit Ramar um, uh, experiment as the precursor to the modern Islamic banking and finance industry. So this was underpinned by this desire to uplift the poorer sectors of the community. Yeah, 100%. And and it worked so well that it was eventually shut down by the uh, Egyptian government. <laughs> and um uh but 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 that kind of laid the foundations for thinking around partnership models um and profit and loss sharing models mm. that formed the the kind of basis around Islamic finance. Equally important was the Malaysian experience which was driven by the Malaysian government. So after Malaysia achieved independence in 1956, the government sponsored um, pilgrims. So, so f- for example, if you were saving to go to the Hajj, mm-hmm. you would save your money and the government would um, kind of collect all that money and it formed the Tabung Haji. Tabung Haji uh, basically means, you know, it's it's a pilgrim's administrative fund. Mm. And it collected the all the savings from Malays um, and then obviously over time, this uh it became quite a large fund and it would fund uh or it would invest in accordance with the sharia and so in malaysia they you know we i say we we developed our own ideas and structures around islamic finance with kind of little interaction with what was happening in the middle east right so quite sort of an organic yeah organic uh, organic in the sense that it was regional so mm. organic the 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 experience in in egypt was a very grassroots organic experience um, and in Malaysia, it was led by the government and led primarily by people saving to go to the Hajj. Right, okay. But it was really the oil embargo of around October 1973 mm. against the countries that supported Israel that gave the Islamic finance, banking and finance industry a, a massive push mm. because the price of oil between October and December of that year quadrupled. Wow. And a lot of this cash injection played a major role in the development of the Islamic finance industry. So you had um, so Islamic finance, uh, banking, and finance at the time went for this vague, kind of almost um, utopian set of ideals mm. to, to to reality. So, for example, you had in 1974 the OIC, the Organization of Islamic Conference, created the Islamic Development Bank, the IDB. And in 1975, the first fully-fledged modern non-government private Islamic bank, the Dubai Islamic Bank, was established. Right. These developments were rapidly followed by the creation of a whole range of other Islamic financial institutions. So over time, you know, according to Moody's, S&P, all these kind of um, organizations rate, you know, there's all these figures that rate Islamic finance growth from 15 to 20% you know, right through the 1990s to, to, you know, over the last, let's say, 30, 40 years. Mm-hmm. You know, there's rapidly growing industry. But, you know, it's growing, it's a rapidly growing industry, but from a, from, from, from a, a small base. Right. Uh, okay. I mean, in comparison to conventional banking and finance, we've been around for, I don't know, 400, 500 years. So after that Dubai Islamic Bank, then I guess a lot of other Muslim countries followed suit and started setting up their own Islamic banking industries. Yeah, so there's now, I don't know how many there is now, but there's probably over 500 or so uh, Islamic financial institutions. So we're talking banks, Islamic funds, um, you know, uh, takaful uh, or Islamic insurance mm. companies, uh, private offices, family offices, 
you know, and, and a further, you know, over 100, 200 also conventional banks that offer Islamic windows, which is a mm-hmm. conventional bank with an Islamic window. And some are fully-fledged Islamic banks that are kind of subsidiaries of conventional banks. Some are windows, and, and there's different setups according to the different countries. Right. So some countries, they, they require a complete separation between conventional and Islamic. Mm-hmm. Um, some allow Islamic windows, and there's a lot of discussion on that that we'll talk about in later episodes. Mm-hmm. So now, I guess, the Islamic finance industry, and there's a lot of, again, a lot of debate on how they calculate this. But it's anywhere between, you know, S&P, Moody's, uh, these types of rating agencies put it at, you know, 3 trillion to 5 trillion and, oh. and a whole range of different numbers in terms of the, the estimated market for Islamic finance mm. globally. So the Islamic banking and finance industry has been going roughly for about 50 years or so. Do you think it's still applicable and it's still as in- important to the younger generation today? It's really hard to ascertain. I think, you know, if you if you look at the OIC country or the Muslim world, it's a very young population. So we're talking a very youthful population. Mm. So according to OIC, I think the, the, their member states collectively account for about 27% of the global youth population. Right. And that will increase to 35% by 2050. Mm. According to some studies, around two-thirds of the Muslims globally were under the age of 30. We know in Australia that, you know, 50% of the Australian Muslim population are under the age of 24. So it's a very young demographic. Yeah, that's right. And and obviously now there's a lot of Islamic fintech and, and all that kind of stuff. So the Islamic fintech market by size was about 49 billion in 2020. And again, it's projected to grow to 128 billion by 2025. So I, I think generally, depending on how the industry is able to, to, I guess, speak to this demographic. Mm. And given it's such a young population, I would think it would grow. Uh, but then again, there are other factors like religiosity and, and how important it is for for young Muslims to, I guess, do their banking and finance in a way that complies with 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 their faith. Yeah, and also things like services that appeal to them. Yeah, that's right. All right, we're back after that uh, little interlude, uh, interruption, picking up the kids. <laughs> so where were we at? So yeah, you were going to explain to us some of the structures and the products that exist in the Islamic banking and finance industry. Okay, so to me, the objective of this kind of interest-free banking and finance model, hmm. the pioneers of Islamic banking and finance utilise contracts and, and products in which capital can be combined with skill to develop socially beneficial returns. Mm-hmm. And these products worked uh, to a varying degree of success. So the initial products, I guess, that came out, or, or I guess the, um, the ideal kind of Islamic products that were envisaged by the early Islamic economists mm-hmm. were these profit and loss sharing products, so more equity-type uh, based structures. And, and these include, you know, mudaraba or musharaka structures and th- these are the quintessential i guess profit and loss sharing structures can you explain a little bit about those two and w- what makes them different okay um, musharaka structure is essentially a, a partnership it's essentially a joint venture uh, mm. arrangement and they're, they're obviously within musharaka there's different uh, I, I guess um, sub structures okay <laughs> <laughs> so you have for example uh sharikat al-aqd which is a um which is similar to a, a joint venture 
mm-hmm. um, and then you have other co-ownership structures, Sharikat um, al-Mulk, for example, which has that co-ownership um, model. Mm-hmm. And you have Musharaka Mutanakhasa, for example, a diminishing ownership structure. And there are many, many other structures. But mm-hmm. in a nutshell, yep. Musharaka... Actually, sorry, I'm going to start with Mudaraba. Okay. Okay, Mudaraba. <laughs> okay, so Mudaraba is... And I'm going to try to explain this so hopefully anyone can understand it, right? Mm-hmm. So Mudaraba is a structure which one person contributes the funds to the venture or the, or mm-hmm. the business... And the other person contributes essentially sweat equity. Right. So knowledge, expertise, um, entrepreneurial uh, skills, etc. And so me, the say I'm the, the, the bank or I'm the um, funding provider. Mm-hmm. So I'll be the Rabbil Mal, right? Okay. And I, so I provide, let's say, let's say we, we enter into this Mudaraba um, situation. Mm-hmm. You are an expert in... Gardening, gardening, say, <laughs> which I'm not <laughs> gardening, and we set up a, a, a Jim's mowing business yep. or a Nisa's mowing business. Um, so I would contribute the capital, right? And you just contribute your expertise. Mm-hmm. We go 50 50, profit, profit, we both profit, and we make a loss, we both share the loss. Okay, so that's Muldaraba, yeah, mm. that makes sense. And so the, um, the person with the expertise doesn't. Put any money in, but they no will, money in. they will gain yeah, from it exactly. So that's mudaraba. Mm-hmm. So musharaka is whereby we we both contribute a cash. So it's a partnership mm-hmm. or joint venture. So it, it can involve two parties or, or more parties, mm. and it forms this kind of business enterprise where all the parties contribute capital and labor. Okay. Yeah. So we're putting in cash. We're putting in um, expertise, and and each partner is liable for any loss in accordance with its proportional share of the cash that that you've put in mm. in the investment and the profits are, are distributed on a you know a pre-agreed ratio okay so i think that's pretty straightforward mm. so obviously with profit and loss sharing you know we have a greater or investors have a greater stake in the project success and there's more of a hands-on involvement in terms of the product uh, management so in a lot of, for example, home financing situations whereby they use these musharaka structures, they would, they would use musharaka mutanaqisa, mm-hmm. which is essentially, okay, so I'll try to explain this um, simply. Is it like a lease to own? No, it's not no. like a lease to own, but there are lease elements within that. Mm. So say, for example, we'd go into a, uh, a musharaka mutanaqisa uh, structure. Mm-hmm. So I would contribute, say the house is 100 bucks, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> A doll's house. Um, yep. So uh, we go 50-50, but you'll, over time, accrue or mutanaqasa, minnaqas, right? So you're, it's a diminishing ownership mm. structure. Mm. So you'll, my ownership interest in that entity will, will gradually diminish. So you'll pay off uh, my share of the house. So, for example, I would, uh, me and you would um, contribute capital to the property on a pre-agreed ratio. And over the term of the agreement, I lease my equity uh, to you, I lease mm. my equity back to to you, and also I release, I, I I kind of relinquish my right of occupancy to you, being the the person that's living in it and and paying for the rent. Mm-hmm. So essentially, I become a landlord for my share of the property. Okay. So you pay rent on the share owned by me, right? So because you own you own half, I own half, so you're paying rent on 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 my share, and eventually you. Uh, it's a diminishing musharaka. So my equity 
you essentially buy my equity in the uh, property. Right, okay. That's essentially Musharraka Mutanaqasa, that we go into a partnership and you um, buy out my um, equity stake in the venture. Now, there's certain problems to that model in terms mm. of from a funding perspective. Right. Uh, and, and just from a practical and, and uh, market perspective. Okay. So what typically happens is, say, for example, there's four of us, right? So four of us, we, you know, there's a housing price in Sydney, which is, you know, a million over a million in average house mm. price. <laughs> so we're each putting in 250K, right? So we each put in 250K, we draw straws, see who gets it, and Anissa gets it. Mm-hmm. Mashallah. Fantastic. <laughs> so you're paying, you, you, you can go buy a house, you're, you're, you're pay, we, we have equity share in that in that property so you're paying you know you're you're paying rent Mm. and we're getting a share of that rent but what happens is after let's say 20 years Mm -hmm. where you pay off this um uh house you pay us back we've we've got our rent and our profit Mm -hmm. and then all right let's let's see who gets the next house and ahmed gets it Mm -hmm. all right fantastic another 20 years all this time i'm renting you know i might be i might be getting kicked out of my house i might you know um, i'm struggling I'm, I'm constantly renting after a while you're like hang on bro this is crazy you know and and, and people start to get impatient right, so okay. funding becomes an issue because there's a and the, and that's why there's long waiting lines for this type of product mm. and it's just not as ec- economically viable as some of the sale-based products which we'll discuss in a second and so you know ahmed's paying again we're getting rent after 20 years, and Muhammad gets it. Mm-hmm. Hamoud Habibi. Like, amazing, <laughs> fantastic. But I've been waiting 60 years, bro, to, to get to own my house. Yeah. So after a while, people get impatient, and they're like, you know what, I'm out. I, I, I'm out of this musharaka. Mm. So that's, that's the kind of economic challenges that a lot of Islamic finance um, institutions have with this musharaka mudaraba structure. And on top of that, in, in my research, uh, some of the local Islamic finance, financial institutions here in Australia, is that Muslims, <laughs> unfortunately, a lot of us don't participate in the full spirit of uh, profit and loss sharing. Oh, right. right. What do you mean? So what happens is, say, for example, say if we go into business, right? Mm. You know, if we trust each other, we you know, when we profit, we both profit, we share the profit, right? Mm. Uh, when we, and if there's a loss, we share the loss. But what happens in reality, is that say there's a pool of, let's say, um, you know, a thousand of us pulling in money to, 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 to this pool. Mm. What happened was that people would go and buy out the equity stake of the partnerships, of the partners. Say, for example, we go into business, mm. right? So in the property market in Australia, things boomed, yep. you know, over the last, uh, I don't know, many years. Yeah. <laughs> Still, yeah, it's still, it's still going. Bits have slowed down, but it's still going. And what they would do is they would borrow from friends and family, mm. pay out the my partnership, so you can benefit from all that property, all the property boom. So you benefit from, from all the profit. Profit, but if there was a loss, mm-hmm. they would claim the every single cent of the loss. Mm. So what that means is that there's a high moral hazard incentive mm. for people to falsify the profits. Right. Let, let, okay. let me give you another example. Let's say we, we, we go into a kebab business together, right? Mm-hmm. And it's a mudaraba. Someone could easily modify or falsify 
the financials and, you know, divert income here, divert, you know, exaggerate expenses, for example, and resulting in, in losses. So it's it presupposes trust and honesty yeah. between partners. So yeah, yeah. if the, the kebab shop might be doing killer, like it might be going mm. amazing, 100% profit or whatever, and they one person goes, oh, sorry, man, you know what I'm saying? It's a tough year, mm. uh, COVID, um, you know, we only got 6%, so we split it 3-3 th- three, three each. So as, as I mentioned, there's a high kind of moral hazard incentive for mm. someone to falsify those um, or, or not be honest in their dealings. And the only way uh, for me as a financier to understand, like I'm not in the kebab game, man. I don't know, you know, <laughs> what shawarma, this, that, you know, what to use or how much is, has been sold. So the only way is for me, say, for example, to get a, um external auditor to come in and ensure that you've been acting in the best interest of the of the partnership. Yeah. So I guess from that perspective, there's a lot of challenges that the Musharraka model plays in terms of because it is more risky, mm. you know, and that's part of the PLS model, uh, profit and loss sharing model, is that you share the profits and share the loss. The only thing is the trust needs to be there, and also the the yeah. fact that you know one person is not going to shaft the other partner. Mm. And so a lot of scholars have you know lamented that well we'll just have to wait till the akhlaq uh, character of the of the Muslims uh, improve um, <laughs> for this product to be actually viable. Uh, but Or mm. you don't wait and you go along with products that are more similar to conventional banking. Ah, oh, okay. And here you get these sale-based products or mm. sale-based structures that are more prevalent. So in the balance sheet of any particular bank in the, in the, in the Muslim world, a very small proportion will be profit and loss sharing. Okay. Um, and the majority would be these sale-based structures. So what's the difference between the profit and loss model and the sale-based model? The sale-based models um, or sale-based structures are very similar to conventional financing in the sense that they, you know, they will base their loan decisions based on the creditworthiness of the, of the, uh, of the applicant or project. Whereas profit and loss sharing and uh, would receive these shares and profits and therefore participate in, in the managerial execution of the project, a lot of these sale-based uh, structures, similar to conventional financing, will earn a return. The risk profile will be equivalent to banks earning interest on their loans. Right. So it'll be priced similar in, in a similar fashion. And there's that kind of hands-off nature of uh, the participation. So whereas in, you know, Masharika structure where investors have a greatest stake in the project's success, there's more hands-on involvement in the project management. Mm. Whereas from, uh, you know, the sale-based structures, similar to conventional banking and financing, it's all about the credit. So the returns are more in line with a normal conventional loan. Okay, so I guess the big question here is, how are these sale-based structures different to conventional finance? So, good question. Um, a lot of Islamic economists take this particular view in the sense that there's no difference. How is it different? We're just mimicking conventional banking financing in terms of risk profile, in terms of debt. There's no difference. So they're quite critical of it. Very critical of it. Uh, Tariq al-Diwani, for example, Mahmoud al-Kamal, who raise very fair critiques, I would say, of, of Islamic mm-hmm. financing and their criticism you know, need to be, definitely need to be heard. For example, in, in one study by Tariq al-Dewani, among others, where he canvassed about 81 Islamic financial institutions over the years, mm-hmm. and Murabaha and Murabaha-like, when I say Murabaha-like, are these sale-based contracts. Uh, okay. They accounted for about 70 to 86% of the total financing in Islamic systems. Mm. So meaning that 
you know, the use of murabaha and muraba-like or sale-based contracts rather than these equity contracts based on profit and loss sharing is because, you know, in legal form to be similar to conventional financing, so it fits into the regulatory frameworks, mm. so that in legal form they're different, the form of the contracts are different, mm. but in terms of legal substance, they're exactly the same. Okay. He calls this the murabaha syndrome. Oh, okay. In the sense that, you know, this wide acceptance of murabaha contracts testifies to this emergence of this new doctrine around Islamic finances that it's, um, you know, it's all about economic viability. Mm. You know, and being a practitioner, I can <laughs> kind of, I, I can definitely hear their criticism mm. uh, from a market, I, I guess, practitioner's perspective. I can also see how it's it's challenging to do, you know, do you, mm. do you stick with a more Sherry compliant or so-called Sherry compliant product that is more in line with the foundations of Islamic economics and Islamic finance around profit and loss sharing, but it's just not viable, mm. not economically viable. Say, for example, there's you know the long-term nature, the high, high degree of risk and uncertainty for the Islamic clients, the fact that many Muslims don't adhere to the, the true spirit of profit and loss sharing, and also you know long waiting periods. There are market drivers that make it not as viable as these sale-based contracts. Mm-hmm. So that's why you find that a lot of these murabah uh, ijara, and we'll talk about in a second, and sale-based contracts are the most popular contracts across the board in Islamic financing, as Tariq al-Dewani mentioned, and also in the conventional banks that have these Islamic windows. Mm. People who, I guess, defend these sale-based structures argue that, well, in mu'amalat, mm-hmm. you know, where you're talking about mu'amalat in the sense that, I guess, is there one preference for one permissible structure over another? So, for example, if you have a musharaka structure, which is per- permitted, mm-hmm. you have a ijara structure, which is also per- permitted. And again, remember the rule is al-asl fil ibaha. Everything is permitted except if there's a prohibition in the Quran, a clear prohibition in the Quran and Sunnah mm-hmm. that makes this product or structure prohibited. Is there a preference? Is there more barka in having a, a, a more profit and loss structure that is more in line with the founders of Islamic economics as opposed to a similarly legal uh, halal structure hmm. that is more sale-based? According to Islamic law, if they're both permitted, mm-hmm. like who's to say one has more reward or barka than the other one? Right. So yeah. that, that, that's an argument that they have and it's a, it's a fair point as well. Hmm. We also haven't discussed maqasid al-sharia in the spirit of the law in terms of how it interacts with the various structures. So, for example, you can have a musharaka structure that is more Islamic in, in the sense of Islamic economist and the foundations of Islamic finance, but it can oppress someone, depending on the musharaka, depending mm. on how the structure, the structure might be great, but how the, the full suite of documents can unpack and it could lead to oppression. It's possible. Mm-hmm. Whereas you can have an ijara structure and it could be more beneficial for both parties. Or you can have a ijara structure which is not advantageous or it could oppress one party over the other. I came to this realization when a good friend of ours, our teacher, mm-hmm. uh, a guy called Ustad Nuruddin Lemo in Nigeria, and he was doing a lot of microfinance in, in, in Nigeria. And my initial thoughts was like, oh, so you do mudaraba musharika structures. And he's like, you know what? They just want pure ijara Ijara munte bitamlik lease to own structures, or they want a murabaha structure. They just want the financing, but they want it in a halal and shari compliant way. 
So that was a context in which, you know, that was Islamic finance for poverty alleviation mm. and where they used a sale-based structure because it was more appropriate for that particular context. Right. Why would you force a more so-called Islamic product if it didn't achieve the socioeconomic outcomes that you wanted to achieve? Mm. So I guess that started making me think around different structures and to what extent we should prefer one over the other. Uh, this is probably a discussion for people that are much more knowledgeable than myself, but we need to really overlay the different structures. Like, could we be structure agnostic mm. and then have an overlay of maqasir sharia to actually understand, you know, for each uh, for different contexts, what is the most appropriate structure for that particular context? Right. Wow. Okay. That was uh, that was really insightful. Can you now just go through in a really simple way the how these sale-based structures actually work? Okay, so the first one I'm going to talk about is murabaha. Mm-hmm. Murabaha. So murabaha essentially is a sale-based or cost-plus financing. Mm-hmm. So an easy way to uh, explain it, it's essentially I'm buying something. Yep. I'm the financier. I'll buy it and I'll sell it to you. Mm-hmm. So I'll, sorry, I'll buy a house for a hundred bucks mm-hmm. and I'll sell it to you for a hundred and ten. Okay. And you pay me back in installments over five years. Mm-hmm. So that's a, a typical murabaha transaction. Now, the challenge of structuring that in a non-Muslim country, it sounds pretty straightforward, but yeah. <laughs> there are all sorts of tax implications when you do that. Mm. So Hong Kong, Singapore, uh, the UK, Luxembourg, South Africa, they've all amended tax laws to facilitate Islamic financing. Oh, wow. So if they were to do that, right, if I were to buy a house for 100 bucks, sell it to you for 110 Typically, there'll be double there'll be double stamp duty, mm-hmm. so I'll get hit with stamp duty, and then when I sell it to you, there'll be stamp duty charges. So they've all not all of them, or in different cases, different um, amendments were made. But essentially, for Islamic finance transactions, there's, no, there's they don't have that double stamp duty and other taxes. Mm. In Australia, for example, there's a few issues. One, when I buy it as a bank, there's a capital charge. So on mm. on equity, there's a capital charge. There's a whole range of issues internally when you actually buy something with equity in a bank there's uh, stamp duty which is a state-based tax in australia mm. there's uh, capital gains on the on the 10 percent um there there could be gst issues there's a whole range of different tax issues that are impacted when you make that kind of transaction and that makes the transaction non-viable or n- not to say non-viable but you're not you're not as a customer you're not going to pay an extra you know double stamp duty just mm. to make it compliant yeah, yeah, yeah. So another structure that is widely used in, this, in the Australian context is ijara muntahib tamlik or tamalluk. Mm. So rent uh, ending in uh, ownership. How this generally works is I'm the financier. I'll appoint you as a, a, a wakil, a limited wakil, to go find me a house. So you find me a house, right? We then engage in an ijara contract and you agree to pay me rent So you are paying the rental payment for 30 years. And then there's two kind of scenarios that happen. You pay that rent for 30 years, all good, everything's sweet. I undertake, there's a wad to sell that property to you for a nominal fee. Let's say 500 bucks. Mm. So the ownership transfers from myself to you. Okay. Right? You own the property and I'm done. I've I've had my rental payment, so I'm sweet. Or, for example, after 10 years, you're like, you know what, I, I want to move out of this house. You break that rental contract mm-hmm. and then you undertake a wad, a unilateral promise, to purchase the asset off me for all outstanding rental monies owed. 
Okay. Yeah. So essentially, you can see how there's a, a wakala, there's a ijara, there's a, a wa'ad at the end of it. And typically in modern Islamic banking and finance structures, there's a mixture of all these different components. Mm-hmm. So there could be a, a element of musharaka, the ijara, that they kind of match all these things together. And that's really prevalent, for example, in, in the sukuk world, uh, sukuk al-ijara, sukuk al-wakala, all these different types of sukuk transactions, which are uh, an Islamic equivalent of Islamic bond. Right. But going back to the ijara muntahib tamalluk or tamlik, that's essentially the structure that's used to create debt for home financing mm. or property acquisition financing. So what happens... Uh, if the person who's paying the rent defaults or doesn't isn't able to pay? Well, if you think about it, so we've entered into a, a rental agreement for 30 years. After 10 years, you're like, you stop paying the rent. Mm-hmm. So I basically kick you out of my... I own the house, so I mm. effectively kick you out. Right? I mean, obviously, it's not going to be like that. There's obviously all these processes in place. But um, theoretically, it's my house. I can, I can kick you out. And then what happens is you break that rental contracts because mm-hmm. we agreed right we agreed to pay you pay this amount over 30 years mm-hmm. um, you've broken that agreement mm-hmm. so therefore you undertake to purchase the asset off me for all outstanding money owed. so it's similar if you you, you want to move out it triggers that wide you know you talked about yeah. other countries having amended their tax laws are there still murabaha structures here in australia have you how have you been able to get around those tax barriers i haven't seen many murabaha structures mm. uh, for direct property uh, because of that ta- stamp duty. I have seen commodity murabaha structures. Ah, so okay. commodity murabaha is slightly different in the sense that it's a tripartite agreement, hmm. also called tawarruq. Commodity murabaha is typically used for cash flow financing, mm-hmm. just trade, general trade financing, working cap, these types of facilities, or even personal financing. Hmm. They even use tawarruq or commodity murabaha for home purchases, it's actually a very flexible kind of structure that's used by Islamic finance mm. um, or, or institutions. How it works is there's often a an exchange, right? So in, say, the UK, in the UK, they would use the London Metals Exchange. Ah, uh, right. In fact, a lot of Islamic finance institutions across the globe use the LME, the London Metals Exchange. And essentially what it is is Okay, so you want 100 bucks to do whatever. Like, I, I don't even know what it's for. Like, mm. you can go to the arcades, <laughs> uh, which we're, we're taking the kids in a second. So you just want cash, mm-hmm. right? Like a personal loan. Yep. And I'm the bank. Mm. So what happens is I buy 100 bucks worth of precious metals, for example. Mm. I sell it to you for 110 okay. and you agree to pay me back in a year. So it's at Moraba, yeah. I bought that mm. precious metals, hundred bucks. I sell it to you for hundred and ten. You're paying me back in a year. Now you don't really want these precious metals, right? Mm. So you go and sell it to a third party, or go back into the exchange, the LME, and sell it to some other person mm-hmm. for a hundred bucks. And you've got your hundred bucks, mm-hmm. and I've got my debt obligation. You owe me a hundred and ten in a year's time. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. So three transactions, none of which involve interest. I'm buying something, I'm selling it to you, you're selling it to some third party, right? None of which involve interest. But when you put it together, it's like me giving you 100 bucks at 10% interest. Mm. 
So why wouldn't that third transaction involve a higher markup? Because the transactions are almost instantaneous. Ah. Right, so I'm buying it. So I'm buying precious metals at 100 bucks. Mm-hmm. I'm selling it to you for 110. Mm-hmm. Right? And remember, I can I can sell it to you 110, I can sell it to you for 120. Mm-hmm. Um, as long as it's not oppressing you in any particular way, you your sound of mind, you agree to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, right? That's a contract between us. Um, uh, you agree to that price, and that's the price. Mm-hmm. You can then sell it to the exchange. And the price of precious metals hasn't moved that much. Right. Right. So there's not much, um, if you do it within a couple of minutes, mm. the price has not sh- shifted. But there is theoretically an element of risk there that it might shift. Mm. There is some market risk, but it's very minimal. It's very minimal mm. that you wouldn't get that price. So critics of this structure, mm. and there are many critics of this structure, Say that you know your your window dressing. It's hiyal. It's legal st- stratagems to arrive at a particular uh, outcome, an interest mm. a, a riba outcome, and again valid criticisms. But again, from a Islamic legal perspective, the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, peace be upon him, he never stipulated how long you have to hold a commodity, mm. or what price you have to you know you have to sell within this price or this price for certain commodities. So again, going back to the rules in usul of everything is permitted except if there's a clear prohibition hmm. it then becomes part of the permissible trades so the scholar might look at this typically or i guess when you first looked at, at this or she looked at this mm-hmm. um <laughs> there are many women scholars by the way in, in good, the finance. Good to hear. yes <laughs> uh you know they look at it and say oh, you know it looks like it looks like interest it smells like interest but yeah sheikh where is the prohibition Mm. Like, w- where is the interest in it, you know? Mm. And if they can't stipulate uh, where the interest is or where the riba is, then it becomes part of Islamic law, mm. right? He might say, you know, it's makruh, like, I don't like it. Mm. Try to find something else, but for now, dorora, uh, etc., you can, or necessity, and you, you can run with it. But what's happened with Islamic banks is that they've got it and they've, they've really ran with it. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. Th- this is the main or one of the main sale-based structures that's used by Islamic finance institutions. Mm. Um, so a lot of critics of Islamic finance talk about, you know, we haven't really innovated to make it a better structure. It's mm. easy, it's convenient, so you've just used that. And so th- this is a constant debate that will keep on continuing. And then proponents of Islamic finance say, well, from a legal perspective, it's compliant. Mm. Like, who's to say it's not compliant? It's part yeah. of ma'amalat. Uh, the role of the, of the scholar is to call out if it's not compliant, mm. and it's a compliant. They, these are three compliant tr- transactions. Mm-hmm. So again, a very interesting debate that I don't think the conclusion of which we'll hear in in our lifetime. Mm. All right, I think um, that's it. Have I? Are you still awake? <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Vanessa, for making this podcast less awkward. Um, <laughs> that's it's better, all right. definitely better than talking to myself. <laughs> Uh, and don't forget to share this uh, episode with anyone who might be interested in this topic mm. and um, we'll catch you next time see ya